the incomparable. Number 2. August 2010. So one of the premises of doing comics on this podcast is not to talk about um, the minutiae of the uh, continuity happening with single issues being released this week mm-hmm. in the comic book stores and to kind of take it back a level, talk about things on the level of stuff that's largely available in trade paperback or hardcover so you can get it at your comic store or your local bookstore or on Amazon fairly regularly. Mm-hmm. Um, or e-readers, as you two both have done. Yes, we have iPads here with, right. with our, our, our topic here. So and One so, of us did it legally and the other one... Maybe not as much. And we'll let you know. We'll leave to the reader to exercise. Right. So. It's a shameful, I think, that, that, that you stole that book, uh, Lisa. Anyway, <laughs> uh, I'm Jason Snell, and I am here with, uh, just to make it extra confusing, Jason Brightman. Hello. And Lisa Schmeiser. Hi there. Uh, and we're here to talk comics. And I, I, it's funny that I'm in the room with people who probably do um, visit comic stores regularly. Um, I am a fraud and, and do not. I am a, a, a trade paperback kind of person or a digital uh, download kind of person kind of person um but i like the idea of 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 doing a comic book club and and picking a a a comic that is available readily um Mm -hmm. in bookstores and then talking about it and then we'll i'm sure go off on some tangents Mm -hmm. uh our 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 topic this week is the unwritten which is from uh vertigo uh it's by mike perry and peter gross mike perry and peter gross Mm -hmm. and this was lisa's selection in the comic book club i believe yes very good selection thank you um so I know nothing about uh, Mike Carey's name sounds vaguely familiar, but I know nothing about this comic and went into it with no no expectations whatsoever beyond the sort of one sentence line that you used to describe it, Lisa. So do you want to kind of uh, explain to people what this what this story is about? Sure. I'll start with Mike Carey and Peter Gross, both of whom have been in the Vertigo stable for quite a while. They worked together previously on the Lucifer series of comic books. The Lucifer series was a spinoff from the Sandman books. So these guys have, in Vertigo terms, they have a lineage that goes back to like the 90s. The beginning of Vertigo. More, yeah, exactly. So, and Vertigo is Vertigo DC is imprint, yeah. and is that a creator owned or is that a? So it's DC owned, which yeah. is why the Sandman was in there. But mm-hmm. it's a, it's so it's their adult line. Is that the best way to describe it, or, or they're alt it's their, mature it's their, fiction? They're non tights and flights line, for lack of a All better right. word. Yeah. Um, they tend to their stories tend to focus on the supernatural or on noirish elements or on. Um, Narratives that are not necessarily something you'd find in, in mainstream publishers like DC, Marvel, Image. For example, one of the uh, – actually, two good examples of their current line, the book Northlanders, um, the author of whom eludes me, but is basically writing stories about Vikings. And um, another is You Scout. know there's an alternate universe somewhere where Viking comics are like <laughs> the mainstream and superheroes yeah. are like insanely random. Right. Wasn't it in Watchmen? There were no, pirates. Pirates, pirates in Watchmen. Pirates. But you know that there's yeah. Vikings are big. They're yeah. huge. And Thor is the only crossover yeah. hero there. Yeah. But yeah. another one of Vertigo's big I, – well, I'd say big but more critically beloved at the moment is Scalped, which is a book about – Native American FBI agent who has to go work undercover on a on the deeply corrupt reservation on which he was raised. So, wow. so Vertigo does a lot of 
again, non-tights, non-flight. For a while, they were really into fae supernatural stuff, and they've moved away from that, thank God. But but The Unwritten actually moves right back into it, more or less, because the entire book is about the power of stories to shape people's perceptions of reality or even to create reality, um, depending on who has power over the story and what kind of authority the the audience gives them. And that's basically the theme. That was, I thought, the theme of this, this whole first book. Was so, pointing out to Tommy Taylor that you know, hey, hey, stories are stories can be truth. Truth can be stories. So right. the concept here is that there's this kid, or there's this guy named Tommy Taylor or Thomas mm-hmm. Taylor, and his father was a novelist, and he wrote a series of books that are suspiciously similar to Harry Potter books. They are, in, in fact, oh, yes. to the point where it's actually hilarious because yeah. there's instead of having a lightning scar on his forehead, he's got a tattoo on the back of his hand. The writing style is uncannily and, rolling, like with the adverbial explosions. Right, and Harry Potter was actually. Sort of similar to the books of magic, Tim, Tim Hunter, Hunter, which yes. was also a Vertigo title Interesting. in and comics. And Peter Gross worked on the Tim Hunter books of magic all the way through the run of the series. So it's all kind of come back around. So. Yeah, there, there's a lot of self-referential things happening. Yeah. And they even mention the, the books of magic in the first issue of The Unwritten when they're talking about Harry Potter and yeah. the similarities of all three of them. I'm yeah. amused by the fact that it's it's Tommy Taylor and his two... Uh, and his two sidekicks, the girl and the boy, and it's a, it's a it's very Harry, Harry Ron, Ron Hermione, Hermione kind yeah. of thing. Um, and then one of the issues opens amusingly. There's a writer's retreat at the at the at the house where uh, Frankenstein really was written, and and mm-hmm. one of the writers has written this fan fiction where essentially all these lovable kid characters are disemboweled, and <laughs> uh, and 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 so you you think you're watching another yet another um, mm-hmm. example from the book. Uh, including the prose passages and everything, and it, and it turns out that it's this horrible kind of "what if we killed them all" kind of kind of thing, which which plays with yet another um, theme of this of this comic, which is it's all about creation mm-hmm. and and creativity and creation of fictional ideas and how in the in the premise of the comic they clash with reality because this mm-hmm. Tom Taylor isn't Tommy Taylor, but everybody assumes he is, and then there's this spin on it, which is that you start to wonder if perhaps he is, and mm-hmm. that this might have been based on reality or the book created the reality yeah. or created him or it's fascinating and with only the first trade, which is five issues. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no answer. I mean, it's if you've read the second story. trade, right. I guess you've got an answer, but I haven't. The second trade came out only this Wednesday. Oh. So wow, we're timely. We should have very timely. Yes, I know. not available digitally unless yeah. you're downloading something that's pirated. But because it's almost like a detective story in that you have the the first four episodes, which introduce you to Tommy and the dilemma and the themes that will probably reverberate throughout the entire series and then you've got the story of Rudyard Kipling and his encounter with the same people and how it turned out for him right and that that last one with Kipling was sort of it it kind of restated the themes but Mm -hmm. in a much more obvious in case you didn't get it from the first four issues here's what we're really talking about it was like a fill-in issue because it's a standalone thing but yet it was also that let's wind it back now now that you've been dropped in in the middle of the story Mm -hmm. and let's wind it back and show you that this has been going on for some time because even Richard Kipling and Mark Twain were Mm -hmm. approached by these demonic evil strange people who offer them this power reminded me of a it felt very classic Vertigo yeah. in that way and very much to like those earlier stories in the Sandman and things mm-hmm. where every now and then there would be an issue or a chapter that sort of stepped back from the ongoing yeah. narrative to kind of reiterate themes of the narrative. Because they worked Will Shakespeare into the original Sandman series mm-hmm. as one of the fictional people. Um, what I was going to say is 
one of the things I found interesting was how you had the British writer who made his deal with the devil, as it were, and the American writer who saw right through it shortly before the sinister overloads say, well, you know, America's where it's going on. And I, I was actually wondering if this was kind of these American writers' way of thumbing their nose at Vertigo or thumbing their nose at their forebears because Vertigo had that long tradition of they, – they've got a lot of British writers in their stable and these British writers have been great about plundering classic literature or classic comics. And these are American writers saying, you know what, we can do the same thing but we're going to do it on our terms and, and we would like to take you along for the ride and see how it turns out. Mike Carey is uh, American? I thought he was. I just assumed he was British because he's working for Vertigo. No, actually – I just read his bio this morning, and I believe he and Peter Gross are both American. One of them was, was from Wisconsin, I think. So, which is isn't profound. that where Neil Gaiman lives now, though? Yeah, Minnesota. Minnesota yeah. Uh. <laughs> Some horrible uh, Midwestern uh, British uh, pipeline back and forth, where they just keep importing this right. talent mm. pool. But I think I, I um, had made notes early on in the series. How oh, Mike Carey was born in Liverpool, England. Oh, there goes my ha. theory. <laughs> Or just reemphasizes vertigo and lives in London. Yeah, yeah. is all about those. Well, breaks. there goes my theory because I honestly thought they were making a statement about the way Americans tend to see their stories as opposed to the British tradition of of storytelling and legend. Where when you think about it, the British have this tradition of British of, of, of King Arthur that goes back thousands of years and has has been polished and, and modified through different historic cycles. It certainly is fascinating that that because this the story is set in in London initially and then and then we moved to 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 uh, mainland Europe. Yeah. yeah. And the um the characters are and the references are largely for British authors. And then so in yeah. this fifth issue the the, the last part of mm-hmm. the trade paperback yeah. of volume 1 um when Mark Twain appears and there's this, you know, scene in the U.S. where Kipling comes to meet Mark mm-hmm. Twain, it is kind of an interesting question of uh, what what are they trying to say here? Because yeah. he, he did sort of see through it and was able mm-hmm. to create this work. And so I think one of the questions in this in this series is, are is there is the series saying that creativity is essentially a magical power that is enabled by this in in the, in the series's case this yeah. this source or is it not and is it is it subverted in some way but it does exist otherwise because Mark Twain yeah. told them to to hit to the bricks yeah. and Mark Twain is Mark Twain right well I don't think your theory is actually wrong uh, even though just Mike is, we just moved <laughs> we just moved Mike Carey across right. the sea but what it, is, it actually goes I think more to a yeah. sort of classic British perception of not just American writers but the American person you know sort of that like wisdom in the simple people mm-hmm. uh, approach and well of course Mark Twain wouldn't fall for this because he's so of the earth and folksy that he would mm-hmm. see right through all of this manipulation and um of the shadowy organization, yeah. where the Brits, of course, would fall right into it because they're all about. There might also be some. This this might also be a, a theme that later ties into the whole fictitious geography because, at the end of the trade, they they do have an excerpt from Wilson Taylor's map of where he puts in pins. Right. So yeah. Tommy, Tommy's father. The one thing that Tommy ever really did to bond with his father, the mm-hmm. writer, was that his father taught him the geographic locations where things that were fictional happened. Yes. And he and which seemed to be important, not a, not yeah. important at the time, but seems to be very important it's now. It's becoming more important now, especially since when he breaks into the safe. It's remember what I taught you. Right. 
Right. Yeah. So 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 it's very much this question of like what what is how does fiction and uh, meet reality and does yeah. it does it uh, is there a sense of place right that we yeah it was actually one of the parts of the book I liked the most uh, as, as I've always been somewhat interested in where fictional things happen in real life mm-hmm. and growing up in New England and going to the you know, Hawthorne's House of the Seven Gables and in New York City you'd always be in some random bar and there'd be a little plaque that. Mm-hmm. The the gift of the Magi was written here. Yeah, I always wanted to go down to Greenwich Village and see where Doctor Strange's house isn't. Right. Yeah. Because it's a real address and there's nothing there. And of course, that's part of the joke is that people who he's don't know him, mm-hmm. he's hidden his uh, sanctum sanctorum behind uh, Seven yeah. Eleven or whatever it is that's right. there. In the the soil, uh, literary GPS, as I think they refer yeah, to it in the book, uh, is also interesting in that the book is talking about where fiction and reality meet mm-hmm. and then these locations are like a sort of physical place of where these things yeah. meet the so, real and the unreal so who is this guy who is this antagonist this uh, bearded uh, guy with a scythe who uh, kills everybody sorry to spoiler alert um <laughs> kill kill, kills everybody and uh, yeah everybody in this house except for tommy taylor yeah. um you know do, what what do we know about this guy is he he's a representative of some force that has been around and that is steering writers to write about certain things well, we know right he killed kipling's daughter spoiler right. alert right. Um, yes. we also know that he lost his hand courtesy of wilson cuz they mentioned that late I'll take his other hand yeah yeah they mentioned that in the book and um the hand is imbued with some sort of magical power because when tommy goes to visit Wilson's former mistress, after she delivers the message that this literary cabal tells her to, it turns out that she also tried to slip in a little something for Tommy, and he threatens her with the hand. You've seen this hand. You know what it can do. Right, right. And, and he and, does suggest at one point that he's the devil, although it's— I was actually just looking for that line. Right. It's, I'm Lucifer, the bringer of light, says this guy oh, yeah. who, who's lighting his cigarette, and he says, you might have been off by a few feet on that one. Right. Also, uh, <laughs> uh, interesting in the meta thing from the fact that Mike Carey's— Real. Most popular Vertigo book was Lucifer the Lightbringer. Yes. See, I all of these references completely lost on me. Well, so that's why I rely on you guys. Yeah. Well, there's also there's so much about this book that is, uh, I don't know if self-referential is the right term. It's but got a really rich family background, is the way I thought of it. Where it, it just you, you can really tell that its forebears are in Tim Hunter. Because I got to be honest, I was thinking of Tim Hunter a lot while reading this book, mm-hmm. especially through the London sequences. And that Tim Hunter is. Tim Hunter is a boy wizard. Oh, this is Tim and Hunter this is, is Harry Potter before yeah. Harry Potter was around. Yeah, and that was part of another. It's was, another Vertigo. Another Vertigo. Line. Okay. And right. the way he was originally introduced, Neil Gaiman wrote the original, I think, four-part miniseries with him. Right, with a different artist. It was a painted yeah. prestige thing. It was beautiful. Mm-hmm. One of my first uh, oh, yeah. books like that that I read and really got into. And um, over the course of that book, you Tim runs into John Constantine and I think Doctor Strange at one point. Well, that's the wrong universe. wrong universe. Adam Strange? Right, right. No, he, no, he ran into all the DC mystical characters. Yeah, it was a uh, Swamp right. Thing. Uh, no, Swamp Thing wasn't in it. It was uh, Mr. E, yeah. the Phantom Stranger, um, uh, a very uh, classic 60s. I'm so DC yeah. illiterate that uh, I will take Hell, your word uh, for John it. Constantine, the Hellblazer. Yeah. Right. Um, and this was just before the Vertigo launch, or yeah. really soon before the Vertigo launch. We're talking like 1991. So it's sort of the equivalent of what what would have been Vertigo if it had been invented yet. Yeah. yeah. All right. The same way that Alan Moore's Swamp Thing is widely considered to be Vertigo before All Vertigo right. was invented yet. That that's a good rule of thumb. And then what they did with Tim Hunter is they did Books of Magic, which was um, a 75 issue series, mm-hmm. which I actually have in the flimsies, and. 
Then after that, they did Names of Magic, which was a 25-issue series because people were, were not buying it. But one of the themes in Names of Magic comes down to the power of words to set the foundation for reality. And um, one, of the, one of the villainous forces they have to defeat, defeat is um, this, this, from what I can remember, this creature that springs out of a book. And the only way it is sated and ultimately defeated is when somebody says the right word. And so, so Tim Hunter has always been a little bit about that, what is real, what is not real, what words have the power to shape, not to shape. And these guys worked on Tim Hunter, and then they went to Lucifer, which also had this really heavy mythological background. The, uh, and then this. And that, that what you just said about the, uh, the writing, the stuff, is what's shaping reality. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the fourth issue, that's exactly what happened, where you had that bad literary gathering of mm-hmm. horror writers yeah. you know, in the, the house that Frankenstein was written in discussing horror. Mm-hmm. And then the book becomes a horror Genre convention. Yeah, a yes. bad genre horror. Yes. Oh, yeah, killed one, one at a time in oh, a dark yeah. house in the middle of a storm, yeah, right? Yeah, and that reminded me of uh, mm-hmm. was it the movie Adaptation, yeah. um, which had that same sort of the movie was mm-hmm. talking about, oh, we don't want to become this thing that's going to be all shoot 'em up, car mm-hmm. chasing, and then the movie becomes yes, not, that. Not my favorite movie. Yeah. I, I actually mm-hmm. think it, it, I think the clever thing was that that was what they were trying to do, and in the end, they succeeded in making a bad movie mm-hmm. about making a bad movie. Right. Because it wasn't, it didn't seem ironic enough. It just seemed bad. Mm. Um, I liked it but, on a meta level. But I like well. That's and that's one of the things that really struck me about the unwritten is that the unwritten is telling. It for me, it was actually very hard to get into the story of the actual events of the unwritten mm-hmm. because I was so pulled out and viewing it on that meta level yeah. of this is a story about telling stories mm-hmm. and about the effect of storytelling and I love that stuff. That yeah. is some of my favorite kind of work in general. I love I love analyzing works of fiction and and discovering that they're talking about themselves. And this is my uh, topic for another podcast, but mm-hmm. my uh, my. Favorite thing about the finale of Lost, no spoilers here, other than to say that I felt like it was, I liked it, many people hated it. One of the things I liked the best about it was I felt like it was actually talking about itself. It was talking about what happens when you're at the end of a story and the last episode of a TV show and you want to say goodbye to everybody because you know you're not going to see them ever again and that it was very self-aware. And I know that doesn't work for some people, but I I got that same kind of vibe from The Unwritten that that I was... Uh, to the point where I was almost lost on some of the as people are getting murdered in the house yeah. where where Mary Shelley wrote Frankenstein yeah. because I was kind of more engaged in in the mystery of of this you know, intertextuality of like is it real and how does it affect it and what does it all mean and and I, you know I don't know if that that happened for you guys but I did oh, yeah. find I was I was more focused on that than I was on the fact that there are characters and who are they and that they're being murdered horribly because they're just fictional characters and I'm which of course they all are yeah. right and that's the 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 interesting thing and that I sort of looked at that whole slasher part as sort of a backdrop like you're saying against the the bigger issues although the fact that and establishes the villain right and that he's actually really bad I imagine the, it's also really cathartic for people who really hate genre classification because they make a point in an earlier issue of having these people identify by the genres that they write in there's that one really annoying person who's got oh I write a sexy vampire detective and another guy is like oh I take care of the H.P. Lovecraft and one guy's like I do torture porn and they had unabashedly embraced their 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 market niches as it were and then all of them just get killed <laughs> brutally right and I wonder if it comes down to 
the creators saying something along the lines of, look, you know, the genre can make you, but it can also kill you. Or look, we don't think that genres are a good idea. And this is so cathartic being well, able to kill them. And, and I think there's something there about following your creative muse versus selling out that's yeah. a part of this story. Because in many ways, you could view those people as being sellouts. They're mm-hmm. they're building their, their writing for an audience and a market, and yes. they become successful at it. And then if you flip to the, the last chapter, the fifth issue... Mm-hmm. With Kipling and Twain, I mean, that's basically what the story is there is that Kipling is sort of sold out and they made him famous by selling out. So it's like, are you, is it like a deal with the devil where you become famous because you sold out? Or is that just a usual cause and effect? The sellouts are the ones who become famous because that's why they become famous is they've sold out. And Twain is not a sellout and Mm -hmm. just sent them away. So that, that was that whole, that it's, it's really interesting. It's like that two levels of are these writers, are these writers, selling out and is that what this is about is not being true to yourself or are all the writers sell out but then how does the wild fit into that because where the uh the mysterious character whose name is escaping me at the moment the blonde guy with the beard uh he when kipling is worried about wilder about uh, oscar Oscar wilde oscar wilde uh he says well wilde doesn't actually have you know staying power it's he's of the moment but my friends and i we don't like him at all right which is interesting because what is that? Well, does, well, I assume Wilde's that means he's entire... true to he's true to himself, or he's true to himself and writing things that they specifically don't want. Because Kipling Cause says the whole that... point to Wilde was that he was the he, granted a lot of his lines are very facile and flip, but his whole body of work is devoted to pointing out hypocrisy and t- and telling people that they need to learn to see things as they truly are, not as the polite social delusions that are easier for everybody else to to swallow. And there is definitely a sense in this in this story that this isn't just about telling. Uh, you know, getting writers on the payroll. It's about steering the the reality or the culture. the perception of the time. But, yeah, in a certain direction, yeah. whatever that direction might be. Oh, that's interesting. So the, the idea of stories set the culture mm-hmm. is, is, is very interesting and, and very true. If you look at all the early science fiction work in Jules Verne and mm-hmm. all these, that the writers envisioned all these things before the scientists went, oh, I can make that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's um, Wired once did this futures issue. This is back in 1995. And the reason I remember this is because I actually ended up writing a paper on it in grad school where they were interviewing futurologists or whatever. And the one thing that came out of all the interviews was if you want to find out where technology is going to be in 25 years, read the science fiction that's happening now. Because the kids who grew up reading this stuff are then going to take it into their working lives. Right. That's the story about the Motorola StarTAC phone, which is not only named specifically to reference Star Trek, but Mm -hmm. was designed by a bunch of people who grew up with Star Trek and wanted a flip-out communicator like Captain Kirk had. And so they built it. That said, one one of of my favorite um, phones. To go back to the idea that uh, stories shape the narrative of the time or reflect them, there's the page where you see the the news portal with the the Google search interface and the amplified news network and the people the, the internet people talking. Yeah, and there's, one for, of, there's a forum thread. It's yeah. the first time I think I've seen a forum thread in a comic book. Well, before. one of the people's names is Bunk Moreland, who is a character on the Wire. <laughs> and the reason that stood out for me is because I have been, I totally missed that. I've been lucky enough to sit on enough academic panels where people have talked about how the wire is essentially one of the first forms of long first examples of long form fictional reportage where this is a, where where as a TV series 
it's deeply rooted in observation and reporting, and then all of that those facts got mashed into a fictional outline and spit back out to people where once they saw that, they could then begin to see how this was playing out again in real life. So there was already there's already that fiction versus nonfiction loop in the wire. And then there's this sly little reference to it right, at the, right in the forum thing because you've got Tay 281, Stan the Man. Stan the Man, yeah. Bunk Moreland. And uh, I thought, oh, Bunk! <laughs> I, Shouldn't I, you be getting drunk with McNulty? McNulty, yes. Yeah. I, I just, <laughs> Under a bridge you know, again, somewhere. Again, you could argue that the wire actually does blur that line as well, because I'm sure there are people in Baltimore who would love to tell you that, look, you know, you may have seen five seasons of this TV show, but this is what our it, it really is like. And I'm sure there are people across the country who have this impression of Baltimore based entirely on five seasons of The Wire. Right. And maybe so. some some homicide in a corner, but it's oh, all yeah. based on David Simon basically mm-hmm. writing yeah. about Baltimore. David Simon's created eyes. a fictitious Baltimore, basically, which is based on real life reporting. See where it gets all Right. Right. Yeah. That's well that's interesting because there mm-hmm. it is it is fiction based on reality. And yeah. and that is one of the core questions in The Unwritten is yeah. is is Tommy Taylor a fraud who mm-hmm. was adopted or stolen from Eastern European parents or yeah. is he real? And is he the real Tommy Taylor, or is he just a kid who had not none of that? And he was he created have been by the stories? Into existence, because and, you and see hence the right. name with the unwritten, and, yeah. and and what does that? What does the name of this comic mean? Yeah. Well, there's all, all those people who get unwritten, who they are dissolved into words yes. in the book, which I sort of like very, visually was was really compelling. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, we're we're talking a lot about this on the sort of the meta. Level, and I don't think you can actually talk about it or not. And isn't a successful story like this something that you can enjoy on the meta level and get all of those sort of references, but also mm-hmm. on it on just the reading it as a simple story? And does this work as a simple story? I was going to say I would love to find out the impression of somebody who wasn't familiar with Vertigo. Well, that's me. Or fantasy, and so Jason. Yeah. What is your impression? Yeah. Um, well, as I alluded to earlier, I, I did have a difficult time really getting into it as a on that simple story level um, because I kept thinking about, wow, this is this is playing on a lot of levels here because it's a it's a story about stories. And, um, you know, and it wants you to view it that way because every issue begins in a story mm-hmm. and then pulls you out of the story into reality. Um, so it was obviously I don't I'm not going to get any of the, the references to other not only to other works but also just I don't know the the history of of the the kind of things that Vertigo produces where you'd look at a Vertigo thing and say oh it's a Vertigo thing I get that yeah. um, I think I've read I'm up to like the fifth issue of the Sandman I'm like completely illiterate about that sort of thing I hear that Neil Gaiman is good though he's going to go places uh, he is he's gonna yeah that's right I wonder what a novel by him would be like hmm. or a screenplay or a episode of Doctor Who anyway we'll find out uh, the kids going places so. So that was my challenge. It's like the characters are, are – I'm not entirely sure what they are and if they're mm-hmm. kind of blanks. I mean Tommy Taylor is in many ways in this first set of stories he's on purpose. He's a really frustrating character. He, he's, he's, he's a kind of grumpy guy who may who is unsure about his past and he's trying to rebel against it and say, no, no, I'm not that kid. But I think there's also this great question there mm-hmm. that has to be there for the story. But as a result, it's a little off-putting. Mm-hmm. And there's the, the one other character who's the woman whose name escapes me Lizzie now. Lizzie Hexham. Yeah who, yeah, who comes in and seems to know what's going on and is is trying to trying to, to help him along the way. Or the, um, she herself, her name is like 
character from a fictitious right work right yeah, and there's from, it's from unclear Dickens. and it seems it seems like she may actually be a fictional creation come to life although again we've seen there are a couple characters early on where there's a guy who supposedly is the the Voldemort essentially of of the of the Tommy Taylor books come to life and it turns out that well, he's, you have Jeff Keen on the first page but it turns out that the that the 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 Voldemort whatever his name Mal something Malvol- or other Malvolio the va- vampire Count is, Ambrosio Oh Camp, Count, Count Ambrosio. Ambrosio he's a uh, he he's a he's a drifter who who just was is or crazy so they say. or at least so they say right, right which gets us back to that but again so much going on and rich in that level but yeah. I would have to if if I'm answering your question truthfully I'd have yeah. to say that I was I was actually maybe too engaged too soon on that yeah upper level and not able to invest enough in the characters and I'd almost rather have seen hard to do this especially if you're coming out with um, sequential issues you know 22 pages at a time really hard to do this but I'd almost like to see think I was reading the story of a guy who's burdened by the his father's work Mm -hmm. for longer and really feel like you know, I've connected with that guy yeah. before you pull the the rug out from under me, and I felt like the rug was never under me. <laughs> I, I felt in the first issue, I did feel some of that connection, but I wonder if it was them using some shorthand in the sense that it, it starts in a comic book convention, mm-hmm. which I'm intimately familiar with comic book conventions. I've been to one of those now, mm-hmm. and as of um, last month, just one. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, Comic Con yeah. 2010 is the first comic book convention I've ever. Oh so, my God, you went big. Yeah. Well, when you <laughs> go big or go home, I'm exactly. Sorry. Then so, I went home. The fact that it starts at a comic convention with a uh, a guy who's been uh, he he's there to make money off of not even something he did years ago, but something his father did and named after years him. ago and yeah. named after him. Mm-hmm. You know, being kind of embittered by it, being you know that he's defined by this character, but at the same time they're exploiting it, making money because he has no other way right. to do it. If you go to any moderately sized comic convention, you'll see those people from the seventies yeah. sci-fi I, TV I shows. Took, I took a picture yeah. of Gil Gerard and Aaron Gray signing things. Gil Gerard wearing Gray. wearing a pair of shorts, yeah. signing Buck Rogers memorabilia. Well, on the first page, right. they have him sitting next to somebody whose name is Jareth or Calendar, and Calendar basically calls out the creator's intention with, oh, we thought you were Christopher Robin. And Tommy replies back, looks like you've swept the circle of your immediate family. And it's pretty obvious that it's meant to be a slam on Family Circle and Bill and Jeff Keene. Uh, I, I did I did yeah. see uh, an article somewhere um, where um, I think Mike Carey said that the model for this story was Christopher Robin and that the idea that A.A. A. Milne wrote these yeah. wildly successful Winnie the Pooh books with Christopher Robin at the center and that was his son yeah. but and his the son fictional character it. eclipsed the son to the point where all that people wanted to talk about was oh you're yeah. Christopher Robin from the books and the answer is no yeah. I'm the one from the real world and it's it's a really interesting yeah. idea and you're right you know they spend a lot of the first issue I guess maybe what did it for me is that by dropping you into the Tommy Taylor books immediately I, I like immediately I'm like alright we're going to juxtapose the books with the reality of this guy and I don't know uh, you know uh, it's an interesting story but I, I guess I was more engaged on that yeah. on the meta level than I was on the actual level. I would yeah. love to know if the villain Pullman is supposed to be named after Philip Pullman in any way. Wow that well it's a uh, that's an English they, reference too right? They've got all these different things and, and Pullman is, is such a distinct uh, fantasy writer 
and many of his conventions are well I would say what he did in the Golden Compass is so different from many fiction conventions where oh good news uh, Will and Lyra you you know you guys can save the universe but at a horrible personal cost to you and it's exactly the opposite of the way a lot of fiction works out where somehow it magically works for everybody so before we move on from talking about the unwritten I I, I want to ask a simpler question here which is did you like it and would you keep reading it yes and yes Wow, that's no. I do have some, elaborate, please. Yeah. <laughs> I do have some trepidation, and this may be more my experiences as a longtime comic book reader, and less a reflection on this book. But unless they have a way to resolve this, and then and then find a way to continue the underlying bedrock themes, I worry that this book will turn into something else after about fifty issues, because you can really only drag out the central mystery: who are these people? Why are they trying to shape reality? Where did Wilson go? Once you once you answer those questions, you have to have embedded a new set of questions into the first quest. That's a lot of quests. That, into the first quest, or you have to kind of hit a reboot button. And some reboots are are, are good, and others, you, wait, what? Well, I, I <laughs> yeah. guess that's true with any yeah. any kind of comic series, especially or any long running yeah. series, where yeah. at some point you you either need to shut it down or. That's actually one of the things I like best about Sandman is they shut it down after seventy five issues. There was a story, he told it, and he was done. But Vertigo is actually pretty good as an imprint about doing that, yeah. with the exception of uh, Swamp Thing and Hellblazer. <laughs> they do oh, God, yeah. allow stories to sort of run their course mm-hmm. and then end. Yeah. Um, so, and I think you're actually seeing that in comics. Uh, a lot more often. Yeah. Uh, X Machina is ending with issue fifty. Planetary ended at issue whatever. Twenty seven. I want to right, say. Right. Only took him like five years to do. No, it, they, he started Planetary in like nineteen ninety nine. Oh my god. So it this was. It was. Fanta- we should talk about decade. Planetary at some time. That's all right. I haven't, yeah, that's I haven't read awesome that either. Series. So You've I'll got it. Yes. My, well, but, yeah, but you're, sk- you're skipping ahead now because yeah. I'm going to ask you what you're reading now and what should you read because right. that's going to be one of our recurring themes right. on this yeah. excellently named podcast, mm-hmm. whatever it's named. Just Jason, I, I yes. would. Uh, I was surprised that I like this. It's been a long time since I've read a Vertigo book, many years, um, and so I, I did enjoy this and. I'm intrigued enough about some of the mystery that I'll keep reading it. I think uh, they set up a lot of good questions. The way the sort of cliffhanger it ends on is mm-hmm. is is the intriguing. The flying cat. It's quite painful that yeah. that um, they they end on a cliffhanger and do the thing that I like the least. Although again, intentionally frustrating in comics, which is you end on a cliffhanger and then you do a standalone issue that's not related to anything that's come <laughs> before. Right, Got to build that tension. It's like, God! You know, finally, it's here. It's, oh, it doesn't answer any of those questions. Yeah. This is why trades, I think, are more satisfying sometimes is because they're published so far after Flimsies that if you really want to find out what happened, you you can go and, and do so. So, so t- <laughs> there's probably an entire podcast here, but just the short the short version of trade trade paperback versus the little, you know, Flimsies, as we as we seem mm-hmm. to have, have started calling them. Mm-hmm. Um you know where where do you where do you come down on on that leaving digital aside for a minute just yeah. the trade trades versus the flimsies I've obviously I, I attempted to reconnect to the flimsy you know individual issues and failed and went back to to trades and hardcovers just yeah. because the individual tracking and I was trained not to throw them out or recycle them which means uh, you got to save them away right. unlike every other periodical my I get my entire garage is now taken over with. My flimsies collection, which is why I switched to trade. So you you switched and aren't buying individual issues anymore. The only exception might be Ex Machina because I've been following that since issue one. And you want to ride it to the end, right? Yeah, because that's what I do with why, that's what I do with Why the Last Man, and um, there's a couple other. Or if it's a limited.
limited run series that I suspect won't make it into trade. Ah, uh, right. I'll I'll do that. For example, Vertigo had a series out called The Witching that I enjoyed that you'll never see in trade. It was a 10-issue run. It didn't do well at all mm. and disappeared. And I'm glad I have those because I can pull those out. But Right. Yeah. I, I've uh... – there's one or two series I'll still buy Flimsies, mainly just to support the series because I don't mm-hmm. think it's that popular or big. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I had switched entirely to trades, and now I'm kind of dropping trades in favor of more omnibus collections. Mm-hmm. In, in, you know, like hard, the, the hardcovers, abs- absolutes. The big uh, $100. The entire collection yeah. in one of those. Because now you know, reading a floppy takes like two minutes, mm-hmm. and – uh, it's sort of very disposable. But now even yeah. a lot of trades, there are five issues of these two-minute floppies. So a yeah. trade is like 15 minutes of reading a lot of times, which that's not enough for me anymore. It takes me I longer need... to bag and board a flimsy right. than it does to actually the read The absolute collections the tend to be 24-plus issues. And which it, to me, that's a good experience. Yeah. And you're getting a more complete story as a part of that experience, yeah. too. Yeah, yeah. I, I have some in, some things I picked up in trade because I haven't been sure I wanted to commit to them, and then I end mm-hmm. up with them in trade, and I'm like, God, I wish I had just... Like, Invincible. Yes. Actually, you bought me the first two trades of Invincible, and they're great, and I actually wish that I yeah. had the big hardcover omnibuses of yeah. those, and I may go back and do that because I um, that's another topic for another show, I suppose, but I love, love, love Robert Kirkman's Invincible mm-hmm. to the point where I, I should have, you know, just committed to the hardcovers like I did with Ultimate Spider-Man, which I I just have the hardcovers. For Planetary, I bought the first Absolute Collection, and then I had to wait, and that's all I had read. And then I had to wait three, four years Mm -hmm. for the second Absolute Collection, (laughs) which just came out, and to to finish the story. But now I have to go back and reread the first Absolute so I can read the whole thing at yeah. once. But yeah, it's a, that's the problem with the bigger you get in the collections, the longer you have to wait between right. collections. Yeah. Right. Even on the, the when I was doing the Marvel hard co- or soft covers of Ultimate Spider-Man and waiting for the hardcover, it's two, it's two trade waits. So yeah. it's like it's a year. year. Yeah. 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 So it's a, a yearly hardcover that drops on your desk and you're like, all right. It's, mm-hmm. um, which is not that different from, you know, the, the Harry Potter series or any other kind of a novel series where you wait a year or two I was thinking it's like the difference between when, when television shows get broadcast on the air for the first time versus the DVDs. Right. Because there are shows where – Back to the Wire – well, <laughs> I actually watched The Wire as it was on HBO. And I've been watching it on DVD. And I actually think that there's a substantial difference between when you watch a show and it, and it airs every week and you have a week to let it percolate in your brain and you think about it and you invest all these expectations into it. I actually have you, to do that with The Wire. Yeah. I can't watch The Wire like, like no, candy because it's no. not candy. <laughs> but, um, okay, here's another example. Television on one, of my f- one of my favorite junk series is The Tudors. I just, I just find that series delightful. <laughs> it's hysterically funny. Jonathan Rhys Myers plays Henry VIII as an unhinged lunatic rock god. Um, the history has been tied up and left in a closet somewhere. I think if I had watched it episode by episode on Showtime, I would have been very frustrated because, oh, they've dropped this storyline and, oh, this person was on this episode and you never see them again. I download entire seasons from iTunes and just run them when I'm working on something or if I feel like watching two or three in a row. And it's a much different experience. And I feel sometimes that reading single-issue comics compared to reading the entire story arc through a trade, it's the same thing where you can be really disappointed by a single issue or you can be really elated by a single issue, but when you see it in context in a, in a trade, it's, 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 a, it's a different experience and a different reaction. Well, when Watchmen came out, I, I read mm-hmm. Watchmen as it was coming out ah. and, um, and actually stopped reading comics after the last issue because I felt like I, I, all, it, had put, it had made everything else pale in comparison. I'm all done. This will never happen And it again. took years. Um, <laughs> but w- that experience was really um, 
you know, you would read issue one, and then a month later you would read issue one and issue two, and then a month later you would read one, two, and three, and Mm. and you had enough time to read the text in the back where there were these detailed excerpts that would take you longer to read than the comic, just these three or four text pages. Mm. And then by the end, you know, there were two months between issue 11 and issue 12. It had been monthly up till then. Boy, that was painful when they delayed that a month. And um, and what a cliffhanger. And again, you know, then it's read 1 through 11 so that when 12 hits. And that's a yeah. very different experience mm-hmm. to, to have all of that time to ponder versus, yeah. versus not. I think that's why I was so disappointed with how J. Michael Straczynski's Rising Stars ended. It's because I had to yeah. wait a billion years for, for the final issue. And then once it was done, I was, this is it? That's it? I waited for this? I felt that way about the Star Wars trilogy, the second yeah. one. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> That's right. I waited half my life for three more Star Wars movies, and this is what I get. Ah, yeah. yeah, you're right. I mean, Rising Stars. I think if, if you'd read all all of those as a I unit, have been as it angry might not have been as disappointing. Down. Yeah, yeah. Because I read I read Volume Three. Yeah. After reading Volume One and Two much earlier in trade paperback, I, I, I Volume yeah. Three came out, and my my reaction was. Yeah, okay, I see what he was doing there, yeah. and I wasn't quite as enraged as you, but I do think that it's about expectations and about waiting and yeah. build up. And if it's build up for nothing, then uh, I, I did feel in the unwritten that uh, the issues were pretty dense. Yes, yes, yes. I kept I, going. I like is I this keep... only twenty-two pages? I know, which mm-hmm. I haven't had that experience in a comic in a long time since yes. they're so decompressed now. And if you read them digitally, it's just like a conversation on the previous podcast about reading an, an e-reader. Um, uh, you don't even know how far into it you are. Yeah. And, and right. then you realize, what, well, this is page 15? You know, you tap and see yeah. that it's page 15 of 22. So I almost oh think that reading this, reading this comic monthly mm-hmm. would work. Yeah. That it's, it's a, it's a, You'd have so much to chew on. Right. And you have a good, a, a good enough experience in reading the single issue yeah. that you don't feel like you're wasting your money or that you need the second one right away you're om- you're not getting necessarily a complete story mm-hmm. but you're getting enough of a story that it's satisfying did she want it yeah yeah fables yeah. was actually really satisfying on an issue by issue basis yeah. because even after you finish the story you go back and you take a look at the uh side panel artwork and the themes that they've introduced and you get what they're doing visually on top of narratively and it's 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 delightful that way okay let's move on to what are you reading right now? I thought I would ask each of you. You don't have to go into a lot of detail if you don't want to, but in the in the realm of comics, um, you know what's got your attention these days? Well, the uh, I don't mean to stump you. Well, Nothing. Going, the unwritten is what we've been reading yeah, right the, now. Uh, on the trade side, everything I'm getting is old material. I really enjoy this. That San- counts. Sandman Mystery Theater, uh, which is the 1930s New York City Sandman in the Gas Mask uh, pulp. Stories uh, written by Matt Wagner, mostly illustrated by Guy Davis. Uh, beautiful uh, work. We could do a podcast about that. And maybe we will. Um, the uh, sets a series of trades that I've been reading. Issue-wise, uh, I enjoy Agents of Atlas from Marvel Comics, which is a crazy – it's sort of the brat pack of, of um, superhero books. It's – it's taken from a what-if story from like the, the Rat Pack. The 60s. Not rat the Brad Pack. pack the Sorry, Rat Pack. Rat Pack. Because Rob Lowe is not in No, because I was thinking that would be so awesome if you had Right. The it's the Rat Pack. The uh, thanks. The, um, it's that Frank but, and Sammy and Dean. Yeah. And it's, it's, a 50s, it's essentially there's a, yeah. a talking gorilla man, a, a Uranian spaceman, a Venus goddess, uh, a mer woman, and a 1950s FBI Agent Jimmy Woo. Yep. Mm-hmm. F- uh, forming a team. It's 
pretty fantastic, written by Jeff Parker. Yeah, really good. I, I read the miniseries of that on your recommendation, and mm-hmm. really, really good and funny, and and it's, you know, it's a Pulpy actually and... and interesting because that is one of those rare cases where you've got a a, a publisher owned scenario that that feels a lot more like it was a creator owned book because there's so much creativity that goes into the building of that from from some old characters that they found laying around in the Marvel and intellectual yeah. property yeah. bin, right? Yeah, characters that were in like an 8-page backup story in a from a comic in the 60s. Yeah. Yeah. And bring them into the modern day, quite literally bring them into the modern day, thaw them out and put them down in in today and put them in charge of a Evil organization. Criminal syndicate. Yeah, yeah. Excellent. Good guys in charge of a crimi- criminal syndicate. Okay. Under San Francisco. Yes. Mm-hmm. Nice. They could be right here, right now. I love reading comics set in San Francisco just for that reason because I love seeing how what landmarks they get or what ones they create. I um, keep meaning to read those X-Men issues where yeah. they moved to San, San Francisco. I know. Yes. And Zatanna lived in San Francisco for a while. So it was fun when she was doing that. Because in um, Seven Soldiers, they explicitly reference her living in San Francisco and attending a superhero support group in the East Bay. I was just telling them about Seven Soldiers. Yeah. We should, uh... I've, I've got all those if you want to borrow. Well, you'll download them anyway. I was going to say I've got No, I've no. Got no, <laughs> I, I, could bu- I could borrow. Oh, well, the flimsies. I don't want the flimsies. <laughs> no. Um, although, if I got to give them yeah. back to you. And a hardcover. So so what about you, Lisa? What are you reading right now? Scalped. Um, really, Aforementioned Scalped. Really love Scalped. Uh, I think Jason Aaron is a fantastic writer. And... Um, it shows you it shows you characters that you don't see in a lot of other in a lot of the other stories period so i i'm enjoy- and and plus it's noir and i have a soft spot for noir um i'm catching up on invincible i just got the last two trades oh nice so doing that i am thinking about revisiting walking dead cuz oh, i love walking dead i read through the series run um my brother is an avid collector, and so I read through the series run when I was visiting him last Thanksgiving, and I had horrible nightmares for like three days straight after finishing it's it. That it'll, it'll do that for you. And so I, there's part of me that's like, I don't want to do it again, and there's part of me that really wants to go back and see what I missed when I was busy cringing my way through it the first time, because when I was yeah. reading it the first time, I just kept flipping the page to see what happened, totally. and then I would be like, oh, this is horrible. Oh, my God. But you just, oh, my God. Right, you just keep <laughs> flipping. Just keep Actually, the, the, first two, the first two hardcovers yeah. are in my Amazon. I, I have read it, and now the yeah. first two hardcovers are in my Amazon uh, shopping yeah. cart. I read both in the, the big hardcovers, so I sort yeah. of read uh, Walking Dead every two years when the yeah. new big hardcover comes out. But now we won't have to. We can watch it on AMC starting well, in November. I'm kind of curious. That's another reason I want to read it is I want to be grounded, in, as it were, in the canon before it comes out on TV so I can be all pedantic and picky. <laughs> that's, right. that's not like it at all. And I am waiting Robert Kirkman for... is turning over in his grave right now. <laughs> I'm, I'm saying, I'm, let me out. I'm Marvel from way back, but I did get into Gail Simone's run of Birds of Prey when she was that, doing that in D.C., and they recently revived the title... And I'm actually waiting for the trade to come, the first revived trade to come out in a few months when that happens. Is a new writer on it? No, it's Gail. They brought her back. Uh, is that just the recent, recent reboot? The reboot of like June 2010, yes. That now has the guys in it too. The Yeah. yeah. He's huh. supposed to be a jerk, which I thought would make an interesting yeah, so. story. It's good to have a jerk in, yeah. in the book. Sure. Well, DC's always been really good about that. I mean, they had Guy Gardner in the Green Lantern Corps, Booster Gold goes Love back. Booster and, Gold, yeah. Yeah. I mean, they've always got somebody where you're just like, smack. <laughs> okay, and, so. and, and Jason, and what are you reading? Yeah, what I, you what reading? I actually am reading right now is I just finished um, Scott Pilgrim Volume 1, ah. which uh, with a movie coming out, and I thought, well, okay, if they would invest 
millions of dollars in making a movie, maybe I should uh, mm-hmm. uh, read the comic. And so I, I did, and I'm not sure I liked it, quite frankly. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to read it again. Um, I'm not a big fan of the cart- super cartoony black and white comic uh, genre, and that's what that is. And and I would say that the story for you, that's not you. No. I mean, being married with children. Right, and sure. It's speaking can, to a different audience. I can remember right. not being married, although I can't remember, you know, my gay roommate or anything like that. But um, it you is a different. It, out? it is. Hey, you know, I wrote a whole novel that's a yeah. young adult. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, but but it is it is a different kind of vibe, and it's interesting. Yeah. And yeah, it's probably not for me. But uh, but I have a curiosity: Have you ever read the Runaways, the Marvel? Oh title? yeah. Yeah, because that's also again, yeah, and that's Brian K. Vaughan, right? Brian yeah. K. Vaughan and then and Joss, Joss Whedon. Whedon. And I was going to ask what your reaction to that was when you read that. I really like the Runaways, actually. Yeah, I I, I enjoyed both both volumes of the Runaways. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I, I like the like the premise. You know, it's it's a it's a these <laughs> Our premises are evil. This, oh my these, god, these premises <laughs> yeah. keep Pretty, floating around because yeah. Invincible, the whole idea is his dad is Superman, except it turns out that he's evil and then he goes away. And yeah. I, I've been reading Irredeemable by Mark Wade, which is about really Superman nice. going evil and killing everybody. Yeah, I want to get right. into that. Which is very good, very good. The um, the the Runaways or Brian K. Vaughan, just in general, his stories are always he he's got such great concepts mm-hmm. that you can sum up in the one sentence. Yeah, you know. Kids find out their parents are evil, they run away, or mayor gets infected with alien technology. Runs right. New York City. Runs New right. Right. All the men die except becomes, a guy with a monkey. Yeah. Exactly. Just great concepts. Mm-hmm. Uh, although Runaways, I felt started off really strong, and then after reboot, after reboot, kind of yeah. petered out a bit. As much and, as a Joss Whedon fan as I am, I actually felt like they they made a mistake by trying to keep it as an ongoing and not say you know again we've done twelve issues and the story is over and we yeah. might do another volume at some other point, and mm-hmm. instead sort of said let's make it like any other Marvel comic and just keep on producing those issues. No, and take it's a page from British television. Didn't work. Limited run. Yeah, take, and stop. <laughs> take the run and then come back if you want yeah. to come back with another story. It was something that Marvel I think did fairly well with the Ultimates, where yeah. they did volume one and. <laughs> And a volume three. two, and then, oh, and then Jeff, right. at least, but it's self-contained. See, the yeah. blast radius of Jeff Loeb writing Ultimates Volume 3 is contained because you just yeah. don't read it, and yeah. you're okay. Um, we, we should do an po- entire podcast in the Ultimate Universe sometime. I would love, I would love that. Just, I have strong opinions about that. See, the good <laughs> thing about this starting this podcast is that we seem to emerge from the episodes with more concepts for future episodes than we <laughs> entered with, right. which is nice. I just wanted a comic book club because so, I'm, I'm never going to go to a regular book club. I don't want to read, eat, pray, love, and talk about it. That, I want to talk about comics. That is that is Amen. why. Yes. That is why somebody somebody suggested on Twitter today that a zombie version of Eat, Pray, Love would be great. <laughs> eat brains, eat brains, love. Right. Um, I'm sure someone is working on that right now. I, oh, I'm yeah. I'm sure Neil Gaiman may be working on that. In fact, um, well, they do have the Marvel Zombie Universe. What, so why not? So so my question, um, not just for me, but for for all of us to share is uh, is uh, what should I read? What should I be reading? Do you have a suggestion for something that we should read next? Or should that... we do it based on if you like if if you no, like no. this read unwritten? Or no, just think like, no. just what. Well, you could you can yeah. do whatever you like. There are mm-hmm. no rules here. Uh-huh. But um, I'm just you know yeah. what what should we be what, what we should be reading in the future? Whether this is not a guarantee that we'll talk about it here, yeah. but that we might. Oh. Well, books I think we should talk about in the future. Yeah, sure. Uh, mm-hmm. The uh, throw one out there. Ex Machina. Oh, yes. All right. Mm-hmm. Ex Machina. Michael Bloomberg gets magical powers. Yeah. Well, right. sort of. It's pretty much it, yeah, because yeah. he's conservative. Um, I'm going to lobby for Preacher if you've never read it. Mm. Not a big fan of Preacher? Well, that could be good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I, yeah, yeah. I, I started uh, yeah. reading it back when it first done, and I've tried the trades every now and then, and yeah. I've never successfully been able to finish. 
It could be my yeah yeah. We'll, we can get into it in a future yeah. podcast. It'd be yeah. pretty exciting. Um, the planetary. <laughs> yes. Ooh. What, planetary. Yeah. Planetary uh, for sure. Archaeologists of the unknown. You know, because that also gives us an opportunity to talk about that universe that they created, which ties into the Authority and Stormwatch as well. Mm-hmm. And which, I just, re- yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I recently read the Authority, and I thought that was actually pretty, pretty good. Oh yeah, the spirit the of the twentieth century. Yeah, the, yeah. the first iteration of it's really yeah. good. They've rebooted it a few times, and it's gotten the, really. If you just read the Mark Millar stuff or the Warren Ellis, right? Yeah. Um, just those two. Yeah. You're, it's awesome, and it all. It's actually more impressive if you consider when it was written. Oh yeah. Which was all. It was what. Late nineties. Mm-hmm. Um, there's now actually it's, a it's, Superman. Everything is like that. Authority got under the skin of some writers so badly. There's a Superman issue devoted to debunking it. Which I he's like, I'm not gay. <laughs> that they're debunking. No, that basically it was the because you know one of the bedrock premises of the Authority is look, we're gonna we're gonna take responsibility and do things that you people will shy away from doing. And there is um, an authority like Cabal that runs wild through the DC universe for a couple of episodes, yeah, and the, Superman takes him in hand and the, says, "No, the, we have an obligation to live to this higher standard." Isn't that that rebooted uh, the rebooted Justice League? Justice where, League with Grant, Unlimited with, with or Grant, just Grant Morrison, where the the aliens come from another planet and they basically say, "We are superheroes and we're going to take over and make the world a better place." And the JLA is like, "What the hell?" There's like a Justice League Extreme or a Justice League Dark. I can't remember the name of the title. I have it. I'll have to check my arc my archive. God, that sounds so pretentious. I'll have to check, but yes, it had like the, the archives. No, it had Flash with like two different uniforms, like a black uniform he wore when working with this team, and then the regular uniform he had with the regular Justice League, and mm-hmm. it was just insane. Wow. But um, I, no, I, I think can't, Planetary is a good one. I don't think I can even give you guys any recommendations for something you should read that you haven't already read or that you haven't recommended to me, because I could say the the authority, and I know that you well, recommended that did, to me, I did or, read, or uh, um, Tom Strong, or yeah. Top Ten have by, you guys by Alan Moore. Hmm? Have you guys Zot? ever read Zot by Scott? N- not McLeod? in a long, long time. That's there's a, a nice big omnibus one, right? of Zot. Now. Yeah, there's a huge. I ended up. Um, I had to have surgery at UCSF last year, and they delayed it by a couple of hours. And somebody had left the Zot omnibus in the waiting room, and I read the entire thing while waiting for it. And it's a good way to pass the time. It was a great way to pass the time, and because McLeod is is the guy who wrote how to you know understanding all, comics exactly. It was fascinating to see what he was putting into practice in his own book as well. So I think, uh, just to be obscure, although you probably have read this, I'm going to say what you should read is Micronauts 1 through 12 by Bill Mantlo and Michael Golden from the late 70s. The most delightful example of how you can take a Star Wars ripoff based on a toy mm-hmm. and make it something that actually is among my favorite things in the entire medium. So that's I, my that's my. I have blog. it on my, my uh, pile to read. Yeah, it's, is, uh, it, is it available in uh, trade? Or no, would I have to no, from no, because the rights have, have been completely messed up. It's available. It's available on on computers and iPads. Okay, and um, Not, and I actually I have the the Marvel reprinted a five yeah. issue on high quality paper recolored watercolor recolored oh, wow. of the first twelve issues, a special right. edition, and I have that yeah. actually on my bookshelf, and I will bring it in and let Excellent. you read. It. Because of licensing issues, there currently is no legitimate way to buy a collection right. of the Micronauts. Right, and in fact, that is why I downloaded. I'm, I'll say it. That's why I downloaded the Micronauts BitTorrent. I have all the flimsy yeah. issues, but quite frankly, they're in a box under a box under another yeah. box in my garage. I'm reading ROM. Rome right Space now. Night also that's By Michael Bill that's Bill Mantlo and Salbasima did yeah. that one and th- yeah. those th- were those great two kind of toy tie-ins yeah. that I think far surpassed right. and, and outlived their toy antecedents. Yeah, yeah, the, the Rom was 75 issues and a bunch of annuals and people still talk about Rom. 
yeah. on message boards. And, and, and it's things. not available because of the rights License problems issues. with Parker Brothers, I think, is that yeah. one. And then the Abrams Gentile Entertainment that have tried to relicense Micronauts a million times. And Marvel actually did two issues of a Micronauts reboot before the writer and artist discovered that the talks had broken down and that they weren't able to publish them. And uh, so, yeah. But anyway, that first run of the, the first 12 issues, um, that's uh, just huge fun. And you can see the Star Wars influences and you can see them trying to find ways to get these toys in but not have them be toys uh, just and as a seven year old basically mm-hmm. right. that was the thing that blew my mind my and opened up my world I just bought my nephew a bunch of Star Wars comic right. books for his both birthday. of those are, are classic 70s Marvel style stories mm-hmm. yeah. which and Michael Golden doesn't get enough credit he, tremendous he does, affection for Marvel from the 70s and 80s we're all that same yeah. age that re- yeah. you know, grew up reading it in the yeah. late 70s absolutely and the 90s happened <laughs> Like, See, what? I, I, but I don't. No. But they didn't happen for me because uh, Watchmen was published, and then I went away. Right. Then yeah. you missed the you missed the entire Rob Liefeld era. I, I was, had a friend who showed me a com, a, a, a Spider Man comic and said, "This Liefeld? Todd McFarlane yeah. guy, he's really popular." And I looked at the Todd McFarlane Spider Man, and I was like, "Yeah, so glad I'm not buying comics anymore." Right. I, having lived through the '90s in comics, <laughs> there, there was so many. Uh, there were years where I would go to the comic store, and every Wednesday. Uh-huh. And, and walk nothing. out with nothing. <laughs> Very sad. It was a depressing, dark time. And then I picked up on a whim in this comic store in uh, in Borum Hill in Brooklyn a, a Chris Ware Acme Novelty Library number three, and that just opened the entire world of like indie comics mm-hmm. to me, which sort of saved the nineties. In- indie comics used to be lame. I'm, again, yeah. we, oh, yeah. we, we should it was people we should, who can do. Mainstream. We should wrap this yeah. up oh, yeah. and and spend it for another time. But it used to be they used to be lame. I mean, I, I bought John Sable Freelance by Mike Grell, and that was pretty good. And mm-hmm. Dreadstar mm-hmm. was Jim Starlin owned it, and that was pretty cool. But there was not, and you know, there was your Elf Quests and your you know you you make fun of the Elf Quests. You know, yeah, Elf Quests got me through tenth grade. Wow, yeah. I, I, I believe it. No, it didn't my tenth grade English me, class but, was so boring that my friends and I would pass around our issues of ElfQuest and, and go back. Th- and it it's eye-rollingly bad. I'll but, admit that. I'll be It's like Don Bluth put to paper. But they've right. come, but they've come a long way. Yeah. And it actually, you know, they've at gone the time, mainstream. Well, yeah. At the time, oh, yeah. you know, you would, you would never get an indie, an indie comic like uh, Invincible, which is mm-hmm. essentially a Marvel comic, except in its own universe. Yeah. And that's so great because it's freed from all of that stuff, but it's still that kind of tone, which I grew up with and I love. Yeah. So but before we go, I, I will say, following on my recommendation of Micronauts, something that you can get when you talk about us being children of the 70s uh, of comics, um, so are many of the creators out there now, which is why right. you start to see those echoes. And I, I have the hardcover of Planet Hulk, which is by a guy named Greg Pack. Planet Hulk is so rife with references and homages to the Micronauts, especially those first 12 issues, that when I first read it, I... I I was so excited. I was like pacing around my house because it's like, oh my god, somebody else remembers the Micronauts and they've done a comic and he's a comic book writer now. It's a Hulk with these aliens and the robots and it's just like an oh, and it's hilarious. But it's it's true. I mean, and there are actual characters that are that are are clearly analogs of it. So um, I, that that would be my secondary recommendation. That is available widely right. and is a nice self-contained story and I, that I, isn't really related to the rest of the Hulk mythos. It's just right. kind of a what if there was a big strong guy dropped down on a planet and then things happened. All right. Well, then I guess until next time, and I hope there will be a next time now that we've got this, uh, all these ideas of way, places <laughs> of we can go. go next. Mm-hmm. Um, thank you for listening to this um, excellently named podcast, whatever its name might be. Um, until next time, I'd like to thank uh, Jason Brightman. Thank you. And, and Lisa Schmeiser. Thank you for having I, me. I'm Jason Snell. Uh, please join us next time. Who knows what the topic will be, but we hope you enjoyed listening. 